I am Tova Cito. I believe our lives should be happy, healthy, and abundant. And I believe it's our job to get us there. Every week, I will have inspiring, educational, and fun conversations that will help you live your very best life. Welcome to The Remedy. Hello, and welcome to the next episode of The Remedy with Tova Cito. I am sitting here today with a gorgeous woman. Beautiful. Thank you. Uh, um, And tall, and I mean, just beautiful. Beautiful woman named Terry Hill. Um, I actually met you several years ago. I've met you on a couple of different occasions for a couple of different reasons. Right. And have always just been very taken aback at your just you. You just have a presence and a way about you. And um, but that's not why I'm not asking you to talk about, <laughs> about <laughs> that today. Right. <laughs> How to have presence. We're actually um, continuing on the conversation that I started last week with Janice Gant about anxiety, depression, and suicide. Right. And I asked um, I asked you here today to continue that conversation by sharing um, your personal story, your experience, your wisdom. Um, I mean, even just before the episode started, you were, you were just such a flood of great wisdom and information. And I just was like, wait, stop. We got to let us start the show right. because it just, I think it just oozes out of you. It's so much a part of who you are and what you do. Well, so let me just say you. this first. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. And I have to say, first of all, I have a girl crush on you. Ever <laughs> since I saw you speak the very first time, it was like, this woman has something very special Aww. about her. And you do. And Aww. that's why you're touching people's lives. And I'm so grateful to be here to be a part of this. Oh, well, thank you. That is such a compliment coming from someone like you. Thank but, you. Um, I really, I feel so lucky to have you on the show today because... Um, not only because of who you are and the reputation that you have, but the experience that you have to this incredibly horrifying um, topic of suicide is, um, I mean, to get someone like you with who's willing to share their story and their experience with the purpose of hopefully helping others is just so rare. And so... Again, thank you very much. So if it's okay, I um, just, I would love to hear just your story. Tell me, I'm sure you've told it a thousand times. So I I just say go and I'm sure I'm going to interrupt and ask questions in between, but. Sure. And let me just say right up front, there's, there are no off limit questions for me. Good. I, uh, I feel like it's so important for people who are struggling currently with substance abuse issues or mental health issues and who are in such a state of depression that they just don't think they can go on to hear what I have to say and to know that there is always hope. And it's a very personal topic for me. As you said, I've I've experienced suicide. I'm technically classified as a survivor not a not of a a, oftentimes when people think of a survivor they think of someone who attempted and then did not succeed right really in in the um the way we discuss survivor now is are the ones who are left behind Mm -hmm. and i lost my first husband in 1995 
And then nine years later, my 14-year-old daughter, my youngest daughter, also took her life. And Tova, what I've learned through this process is that oftentimes when a parent suicides, it opens a door a child may walk through. It is an option they may not have taken or had, had that parent not suicided. And so um, it is what I, I want people to understand is that suicide is the most difficult death to grieve mm. because it's so complicated. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, uh, if, if a person has cancer, you can be angry at the disease. If a person's killed in a car accident, you can be angry about the, the car rolling over, whatever mm-hmm. the case may be. But when a person suicides, you either are angry at the person who seemingly made a choice or you turn that anger onto yourself. And that's what is is such a horrible plague for those left behind because you don't want to be angry at the person, your loved one who's gone. You, you, You think, what could I have done? Oh, I, I can't even imagine how how horrifying that question it is. is. And and it rolls in your mind because what our what I have learned through my experience, and I will get into my story, mm-hmm. what I've learned in my ex- experience is that a, a human being cannot wrap their mind around suicide because most of us are designed to want to live, mm-hmm. to struggle to live, to do whatever they can do to live. Right. I mean, people Most go of through, us are afraid to die. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. So- mm-hmm. Generally, it's very hard for us to wrap yeah. our mind. And oftentimes, when you say they were out of their mind, they they must have been out of their mind when they made that choice. Mm-hmm. In a sense, they were because mm-hmm. they are experiencing some brain chemical changes that help that unfortunately makes a makes this a possibility, mm-hmm. makes the 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 journey over the cliff a lot easier than to turn around and walk away from that into the light. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of it has to do with your bank, brain chemistry. And that, which, which Janice touched on. Janice touched on a couple of things that you just said that I thought were incredibly profound. The first one is, is the permission that a parent who commits suicide gives their children. She said, and the way that she described it, she said, if you are a parent, and she has you know people in her office who are, our parents who are contemplating suicide, and she says, I have to tell them, what you need to understand is you are wrapping a gift, and you're giving it to your child, and that gift is permission to do the same thing. Absolutely. And I was like, oh, I mean, that that was incredibly insightful. And tr- I mean, I get it. I, I get that makes sense to me, but I've never had that thought process. Right. And, you know, one thing I, I explain to when, I, when I, I'm speaking to people about this is that I did the best I could with the information and the knowledge I had at the time, mm-hmm. which was zero. Mm-hmm. When I married my husband, Tova, he was the district attorney uh, in Amarillo. So he was a public official. He had been a state rep for t- for uh, two terms from the panhandle. And so he was very charismatic. He was smart. He wow. was well-liked. He was charming. And I fell head over heels for him. But one thing I didn't know is that he, he, had, he was an alcoholic. Oh. 
And how he, old were y'all when you got married? He was, uh, he's 10 years older than I. He was okay. 10 years older than I. Okay. So I was 25 when we, when we got married. Danny was 35. Okay. And what I, I didn't realize, number one, because I grew up in a home where there was no social drinking, but then I went to the University of Texas, and it was a completely di- different uh, experience where people usually drank to get drunk. Mm-hmm. So when I went out with Danny and we were dating and he drank to get drunk, I didn't think anything about that. You had just experienced all that in college. Exactly. <laughs> it made total sense to me. I mean, this was normal behavior as far as yeah. I was concerned. Well, this is how the world worked. Your, your family may have not worked like that, but this is how the world went. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so we, we ended up getting married and we had four daughters very quickly, uh, four within five years. Wow. And But unfortunately, because Danny was a, a public official, I we I, and, and the craziness and the chaos was going on behind our closed doors. People people out in the community did not know what was going on behind our closed doors mm-hmm. and the effect that the alcoholism was having on the entire family. It is a family disease. Mm-hmm. And Danny's solution, Tova, he made comments early on in our marriage about suicide. I'm just going wow. to because if if he if he didn't get the result of a trial, he was so despondent, he would say I'm just going to kill myself. And I looked at him like, oh, you got to be kidding. Why would you do that? Why would you go to that place? See, I wasn't listening to the language that he was speaking. I didn't understand that. So I was like, that's ridiculous. You don't kill yourself. You probably just slapped him on the arm. and Why would you say that? Don't talk like that, honey. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So that's point number one. I didn't know what I was hearing. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize what I was hearing. Mm -hmm. He would also say... Um, if this happens, then I'll kill myself. I'm never going to go through this. And again, it was like, that made no sense to me. Mm-hmm. I did not jump on that. Mm-hmm. And when when a person is, an, is addicted to a substance, mm-hmm. like Danny was, either an alcoholic or someone who's a, who's a drug addict or whatever, the whole family gets sick. Mm-hmm. And it is a, uh, if the family doesn't get treated, People just get sicker and sicker. And there were times when I was the crazy one, Tova. Uh, Danny would come home after work, after he'd been drinking, and I'd be cooking dinner. And my four little kids would be running around and and uh, in the kitchen. And I'd take one look at him, and I'd had it. I mean, it was... it. I hit the ceiling. I was the one who was out of control so much that I was yelling, you know, you're out of here. You pack your bags. You're out. I'm not putting up with this any longer. And my oldest daughter, Tova, would throw herself on the floor and say, Mommy, please don't make Daddy leave. Please don't make him leave. I I don't want Daddy to pack his bags and leave. And I looked at my children at that time, and I thought, what is this doing to my children? But yet, we did not, because we were so fearful that it would ruin his career. And I say we because I was so enmeshed with him. Mm -hmm. I was so... I didn't know where he stopped and I began. And so neither one of us said a word. Never did I say anything to my family. Never did I say anything to my friends. And not only did Danny have an alcohol problem, I knew he was suffering from depression. Why would he say my solution is just to kill myself if I don't get the result that I want in this trial? He was suffering from severe depression. And I didn't know it because I didn't go to to get help. I didn't go to a counselor. 
I just tried to manage it with the best knowledge that I had. And so after 11 years and the progression of the disease, alcoholism is a progressive disease. If it is not treated, it can be certainly fatal. And Danny had gotten to the point where there were many crises in his life. Uh, there was a job crisis. There was a family crisis. I had filed for divorce. I thought, I can't do this anymore. He's having car ac accidents with my children. And the car, I've got to protect my children. I loved him so much, it broke my heart because that's not what I wanted. Mm -hmm. I wanted to live with him forever, but I had to make a decision. Mm -hmm. And when, when I made that decision and when he was losing his job, he was already depressed. He, had, he was under the influence, and he came into our home in 1995 on Palm Sunday evening and took his life in our bedroom. And our four daughters were sleeping in the house when he did that. Were I mean, you in the room? Yes. And you you don't make those kind of decisions if you're thinking correctly. Right. Right. So his alcoholism was was he a functioning alcoholic? Did did everybody know that he was an alcoholic? He was a very high-functioning alcoholic, but mm -hmm. of course, as, as time went on and, and he started drinking at, earlier in the day, for example, and might, might, have, might have a few drinks at lunch and come back to the office, I, people did begin to realize that he had a problem. In mm -hmm. fact, one of the issues uh, towards the end was that there had been a removal suit filed against him because a person did not feel like he was capable of... of handling that job and so that was another thing he was losing everything in his life yeah. so it was easier his solution was to die so you're you have already filed for divorce had he moved out yeah we had been separated for eight months okay. because it and and it was interesting because i had begged him for 11 years just go get some help let's tell somebody let's do something i need to go get help and he said, Terry, if you go get help and you go in into a family support group or whatever. Everybody's going to know. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And you'll ruin me. That's what he mm -hmm. said. You'll ruin me. You might as well divorce me. And so when we had gotten to the point where it was very dangerous mm -hmm. living in this type of situation, I filed for divorce. And he was like, whoa, 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 whoa. And he said, I'll go for treatment. And he did. He went for treatment. He was gone for uh, 30, 30 days. Uh, we, did agree, we separated for, for eight months. But he came, and, he came and went. He had the key to the house. Uh, we had dinner together. It was like nothing had changed. He just wasn't sleeping in the house because I was really hoping beyond just words that this was going to work out. Mm -hmm. But he relapsed. And what I didn't realize is that that's part of sometimes the recovery process. So I knew nothing. I had not gone to get any help. I had um, I had I had zero knowledge of of this big beast that I was dealing with. I was not only dealing with alcoholism, I was dealing with the beast of depression, and I had no idea. So when he t when he when he took his life, the, when, he, when he pulled that trigger, Tova, he died and part of me died with him. It was like I, I imploded right there wow. with him. So he, it, it was nighttime? And yes. Were, were you expecting him to come over? No, no. And so he just walks in the house and you're in your room? You're, are you in bed already? Well, what was even, it's just, 
you know, you, I, I can remember this. You know, they say trauma gets stuck in the right side of the brain. Mm -hmm. And until you can move it over to the left side of the brain and to the language side of the brain, it stays there. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing how I can tell you minute by minute by minute what happened in 1995. Mm -hmm. I have not forgotten. It's, it's, it's like tattooed oh, on my I'm brain. Sure. But what that weekend we had had some we had 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 an incident um, the Thursday night before Palm Sunday, mm -hmm. and so I decided I needed to change the locks in the house. And uh, when when uh, the locksmith was changing the locks, uh, he gave those keys to Danny, and so mm -hmm. Danny copied off one of the keys. And so that night he put he just put one of the keys into the, mm -hmm. the, the lock and came in at that time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I could tell things were different that night. He had, like I said, he, his solution had been suicide in the past, but I knew something was different that night. I could oh. just tell. Wow. Yeah. So he commits suicide. Your girls are asleep. Yeah. And what, what do you do? What do you do? Well, my first, my first instinct was to to check on them because I was afraid they were going to run right. into the bedroom and see their father right. dying basically on the floor. And so I went into the hallway. My door was closed. I went into the hallway and there wasn't, I was shocked. They were not standing there. I had just put them to bed, Tova, 10 minutes before Danny died. And they never went to sleep right away. Never, especially my older daughter. And so I went into my youngest daughter's room, and she was five at the time, and she was sound asleep. And I thought, well, you know, babies can sleep through anything. Right. I walked down to the bedroom where my six-year-old is sleeping, and she's sound asleep. And I'm telling you, I had a feeling that came over me at that time. I thought something's going on here that, that, that is not natural. Oh. And I go down the hall to where my 10-year-old was sleeping. And she has a telephone in her room. She never went to sleep. She's always moving around, doing something, talking to people. She was sound asleep. And at that time, I knew I was standing in the presence of God. He had mm -hmm. pulled his blankets. His angels were there with their, their wings over their ears and mm -hmm. pulled his blanket up over them to protect them. And mm -hmm. I prayed just, Lord, please let them sleep until I have the words right. to tell them what happened to their father. And it is a miracle. And that's what happened. I mean, they slept all night long, and that was with police officers coming in and out. He was the elected district attorney. Police officers coming in and out, friends coming over. The media were out live in our front yard, you oh know, with their gosh. cameras going. They were going live at 1030. You know, the district attorney has taken his life where his four daughters are sleeping. It was crazy, and my baby slept all night long. And I know it was because wow. the Lord had put his protective barrier and hedge of protection around them. That is, that is a miracle. That is, is just a miracle. And you know, that's something I would never change because I knew I was standing in the presence of the Lord. Mm -hmm. That I would never change. I bet. I bet. Just witnessing his love right. for his children. Right. Exactly. In the midst of all of our deepest, hardest, most tragic moments, mm -hmm. the Lord is there. Mm -hmm. That's what I found. Oh. I have found the same thing. There's just no denying it. If we let him. Yes, exactly. Him. I know. You know that. So you're 36 Correct. Now, and I you was. have four children. Okay, five, six, ten. How old was your... Yeah, family? they were 10, 8, 6, and barely 5. Okay, 10, 8, 6, and five. Barely 5. Mm-hmm. And now you're a single mom. Right. With a dead husband. Right. Who's committed suicide. Yeah. 
You wake up the next day. And I, the first person into my home was, was a friend, a lady. And she said, Terry, you need to write a gratitude list. And I looked at her like she was out of her mind. I said, are you kidding me? My husband just took his life wow. in our home. And now I'm a single mother of four children who, and I know this isn't going to be easy, not only because of the way he died, but, but that he's dead. And mm-hmm. I'm now going to, I'm, I'm responsible for these girls. Right. I can't believe, what do you mean write a gratitude list? And she said, well, let's, let's think about this. She said, do you have uh, a roof over your head? Do you have food on your table? And she said, do you have a bed that you sleep in every night? And I said, yes, I do. And she said, and do you have legs that actually take you out of that bed and walk you to your bathroom sink? And I said, yes. And she said, and do you have a toothbrush that you can brush your teeth with every night and every morning? And I said, yeah. And she said, well, it seems to me you have a lot to be grateful for. So every night and every day when I wake up, I, I, I start with a gratitude list. And when I go to bed, I finish with a gratitude list. And I've been doing that now since 1995. So for 23 years, I've been doing it. And I'm telling you, nine years after Danny Hill died, I needed it big time because that is when my 14-year-old daughter took her life. And she was your, she was your, so she was five at the time that her daddy died. Right. And she was my baby. She was everybody's baby. She and I had the closest relationship. And each one of my daughters, as you can imagine, first of all, you know, one, uh, when, I, when, when Danny died that night, 10 days later, I, I remember going into my bathroom and looking at myself in the mirror, Tova, and not recognizing who I, who I was looking at. I did not recognize myself in the mirror. I, was, I, I can't describe it. And I happened to look at the TV that was, in, going, that was on in my bathroom, and I see this building. This is 1995, 10 days. This is April the 19th, 1995. This building going up in, in, in smoke, and half of it is destroyed. And, it's, and I'm looking at it thinking, what in the heck is going on here? But I was in so much grief. It didn't matter. I was not registering that that was a building in Oklahoma City that had just been terrorized. But I thought to myself, I looked at that building and I looked back at myself in the mirror and I thought that is that is representative of my life. Mm-hmm. My life is up in flames. My life has 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 completely been destroyed me. Mm-hmm. It, I've been terrorized. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, uh, what I had to really do is I had to get into therapy for the very first time and 3 months after Danny died, I was raised in Dallas. I was raised here. And um, I had moved to Amarillo when I got my first job, and I was a news reporter. And I, 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 I lived there for 15 years, and of course, all of our children were born there. But after he died, I moved back to Dallas with my girls so I could be around family and friends. Mm-hmm. And so I immediately went into therapy, and I, um, I had to learn about myself. I had to figure out, Danny couldn't answer my why questions. Mm -hmm. I had to figure out my own answers for myself. And what that basically, to, to summarize, was a forensic look of, of my childhood 
leading up to that very moment or leading up to this very moment. I had to figure out why I did some of the things that I did. What are my issues? Mm -hmm. Because when you are dealing with, when you're a person like me, someone who is very uh, codependent, for example, your focus is always on the other person, mm -hmm. not on yourself. Mm -hmm. And so I really didn't even know who I was. And until I could go back and figure out why I, what, what are my issues? Do I suffer from depression, which I have found that out that I certainly did. And then when, when actually I have had depression, anxiety all of my life. When I was five years old, I started biting my fingernails because I could hear my parents who were loving, but they didn't like each other. And I could hear them at night when I was five years old. And, you know, I, I'll never forget laying in bed at night, Toba, and there was a, a train that would go through town, uh, maybe 10 o'clock at night. And I would think I could hear that whistle blow, you know, off in the distance. And I thought, if I could just get on that train and go far, far away. Wow. Yeah. And so I started biting my fingernails. I started uh, thinking I was going to throw up every morning, every night. I, uh, it, it was a, it was, I started uh, pulling my hair. Uh, and I still, even to this day, and for example, uh, in the seventh grade, I had uh, the anxiety. I was pulling my hair out, and I had a parted inch wide, and nobody said anything. I mean, it was obvious. It was an inch wide, and no one said anything because, again, most people didn't know what was going on. Mm -hmm. And not that long ago, I was going to the Dallas Bar Association. I'm an attorney, and I went to the Dallas Bar Association to make a presentation, and I heard on the radio that there was a school shooting in Santa Fe, Texas. And when I heard those about those kids and I thought about those parents and the grief that they were about to go through, mm -hmm. I pulled into the parking lot and I looked down at my lap and there's hair wow. back in my, it was a trigger yeah. and I did it unconsciously. So these were things that I, I, I know about myself and that I have learned how to cope with that. I've learned what depression looks like and feels like. I've gone into those caves. I've gone into the isolation mode where I didn't answer the phone. I understand all of that. I understand thinking about the future and when the next shoe is going to drop. When am I going to lose the next person in my life? And so, unfortunately for me, some of my fears came true. And, um, you know, my daughter struggled. All of them did. And when Hallie died, it was like, now, now, what am I going to do? How did how did all four of your children, did they struggle with kind of the same or was it all different with them? Well, it was all different. And that's that that was that's the difficult part because oftentimes especially with teenagers you don't know if what they're going through is normal teenage behavior or if it's something more serious right. and so even if, Janice said in the episode last week she said um, that every teenage child displays at some point some depressive behaviors exactly. so it can be tricky yes like it is. are they going to their room because they're depressed or are they go in their room because they're a teenage because they're 15 exactly you know you don't know mm -hmm. and so but i i paid very close attention just knowing that there was a genetic predisposition say to alcoholism or substance abuse or depression or i i had learned that through the process of my own recovery is basically 
that it is a it is passed through the generations and that so I, I very carefully watched my daughters and we got help immediately when, when I could tell that they may need to go to counseling. I mean, we went into counseling. Good Lord, I've bought counselors cars. I know I've dug swimming pools. I've, you know, I've I paid off mortgages. I have, I have kept these people in business but because we really did. We, I believe in it. It is the, you have to have that cognitive therapy to get through some of the, the traumatic events in your life. And so I, uh, I watched them, but it was all, different mm-hmm. and they all reacted differently to the trauma that they experienced and the loss and the grief and you know it was one thing for for me to deal with the public suicide but they're little kids right. they don't they don't know they were just those poor little kids you know right. oh those are poor you know Danny's kids you know you right. know what happened in their house you know they don't know how to deal with that and uh, so it's been a challenge and I and for Hallie, I do believe, and I'd love to know what Janice has to say about this, but I do believe I saw a change when my kids were going through puberty with the hormones and, and the change in their their complete countenance, then their their moods, mm-hmm. and they had these wild mood mm-hmm. swings, and I just think hormones play a big part in it. Oh, for sure. Now, did you get remarried during this time? I did. In okay. fact, I, uh, I married a saint. And again, um, what God does for us, what we can't do for ourselves, he had handpicked my husband, Tom, to come into our lives. He's a, he, he, he did not have any children of his own. So my daughters became basically his, his daughters and he has been a rock and he's a godly man. And he just is very patient. And he walked into a home full of five really, really hurting women and we didn't marry. We dated for seven years. We did not get married until 2002. So we've been married now for, you know, 16 years. Mm-hmm. And he has, my kids, I think, enjoy being around him more than they, than, than <laughs> me. They love him. And Aww. so he's been such a blessing in our lives. And we had been married just two years when Hallie died. Wow. And I'm so thankful that he was in our lives oh. when, when Hallie died. How how big of a role did he play during those seven years that you dated? Well, it was very it was complicated because he 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 was certainly very important to me, but he represented something to my daughters that they didn't have, and oftentimes they had incredible resentment towards him. They did not really want him to replace their father, mm. even though he wasn't. Their yep. father wasn't even here. But I know that kids through, through divorce experience this all the time. And it's that's totally why sometimes normal. it is. It's totally normal. And that's what the conflict oftentimes with step parents is. Yeah. And I heard a very brilliant speaker one time say, you know, one of his, he, he described it like this for step parents, that if you have a bowl of, of, of peanut M&Ms and you have a bowl of Skittles, he said, uh, my, my uh, compulsion is and desire is always to have peanut M&Ms around. And I love the colors. I love the way they're shaped. I love the way they taste. And if you take that away from, from me, and I have those jelly beans, and they are oftentimes the same color, the same shape, everything, but they taste different. I don't want that. I want my peanut M&Ms. And he said, parents, step-parents, if you can understand that they, these kids, no matter what the circumstances are, they will always 
long for that parent. Mm. And it's not necessarily personal. It's just that they want that parent. And so my daughters, for the one of the reasons why we waited so long to get married is because they were, they, they, the, we had a wise counselor say, not until they're on board. Do not get married until these kids are on board. And so we waited until everybody was okay and gave thumbs up for us to get married. Wow, I bet that was hard. It was. Because I'm sure you two, falling in love and ready to go on together with your lives. And I mean, what a patient, good man. Yeah, I'm telling you, he's a saint. Wow. And you know, one thing also, it, it, all in God's timing, I, I'm so convinced that it was God's timing because... What he also, what Tom had to to live with was basically he was in a relationship with three people because when when Danny died, boom, it is interesting how the grieving widow, how, how that all manifests. And for the longest time, it was like Danny was still an, a person in all of our lives. Mm. He was a person in my life. He was a person in the girl's life. And, and, and then there was Tom. And so Tom patiently put up with that. And I'm not saying put up, but Tom accepted the fact that we were all still grieving and learning to live without their father, right? With a man I would love so much, and yet I, I love Tom. I mean, Tom's the man of my dreams. There's mm-hmm. no doubt about it. Aww. So, tell me about uh, your daughter was 14, yes, when she passed away, yeah. Um, and you said that there were signs, yes, with Danny that you just didn't know. Were there signs with your daughter, yes, again, um. I as as much as I had grown and as much as I was aware of the of of the situation of depression and all I still didn't know what those messages looked like. Mm-hmm. I didn't know for example that incessant crying that uh losing interest in all of the things that she loved to to be a part of mm-hmm. the fact that she would say I have no friends. Nobody likes me. Those words, those all or nothing words are very important. When you hear someone say, everyone would be better off without me, or nobody loves me, or I don't have any friends, those are those all or nothing words that are clues Mm. that someone is struggling internally because our insides don't always match our outsides. Right. And I would go volunteer at the cafeteria, Toba, and I'd look over at Hallie sitting in at a table with 20 friends around her, laughing and joking with her. And then she'd come home and say, I have no friends. And I, my, again, I'm like, that's not reality, Hallie. But that was to her. Wow. And so also she, she began listening to very melancholy music. And I think that's a, something that parents need to pay attention to mm. is that not only was she crying a lot, she was listening to melancholy, melancholy music. She was staying in her room constantly. She was sleeping a lot. These are signs that are red flags. Mm-hmm. And when you see all of those together, there's you've got to do something. Mm-hmm. You have got to address it. You've got to ask the questions. You've got to say, are, are, are you thinking that it would be easier if you just went to sleep and didn't wake up. I mean, you don't have to comp- come out and say, are you going to kill yourself? Yeah. There are ways of asking those questions right. that are more gentle, and you don't ever go in angry mm-hmm. or judgmental. You come at that that Aggressive, problem as love, love yeah. with I, I absolute could, love. I could see why that would 
make all the, cause the, the, why would they respond? How would they ever respond openly and honestly to aggress, aggressive right. behavior, aggressive? Um, so uh, she's 14 years old and mm-hmm. what happens? Well, she, we had her, she was being treated for depression. So we realized it. And one thing I have to say is this, as much as you know, you, you may know everything about uh, depression. A person may know everything about anxiety. Mm-hmm. Uh, they may do everything they can possibly do. But s- this is a fallen world, and sometimes people get sick and they die. Mm-hmm. And so we did everything we could possibly do, but, but she, we, we, couldn't, we couldn't save Hallie mm-hmm. from the distorted thinking that from, she from was— Hallie. A, yeah, she, mm-hmm. we couldn't save Hallie from Hallie. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. In fact, my therapist, when I went to see my therapist, she said, Terry, Hallie just died too soon. One of these days, we're going to be able to treat this depression— and we're going to mm-hmm. treat it. If you think about pneumonia, we used to, a century ago, we lost so many people to pneumonia right. until we could treat pneumonia. One of these days, wow. we're going to have treatment for depression that mm-hmm. will save lives just like we can save people's lives from it's pneumonia. It's really interesting and yeah. a really, really smart and insightful perspective. And, it's, and, and, and I pray to God every day that that, that is what we're hopefully we're moving towards yeah, it's coming quick yeah i hope so there are some uh, amazing changes that are taking place with the brain but mainly it's it's to destigmatize it. it for for you me everybody who's listening anybody who's out there because we know the statistics we know that one in five uh, people in the united states is going to suffer from some kind of mental health issue in their lifetime we know all of that we know that um, kids are Taking their lives, that the number two killer of, of our teenagers is suicide. So we know the statistics, mm-hmm. but we have got to talk about it so people will not be ashamed or fearful of asking for help. And that's the main thing. And oftentimes, we have to stop minding our own business as 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 community as a community or as a citizen, or as a friend, or a family member, because oftentimes when you're in the midst of depression, you have thinking errors, and you don't oftentimes even realize Mm -hmm. that you're in the pit of depression Mm -hmm. and despair. You don't know it. Mm -hmm. So it takes people from the outside looking in to say, hey, what's going on here? Can I help you? Because you feel so alone, Tova, and sometimes when there's suicidal pressure building, oftentimes if you just say, are you okay? Can I help you? I care about you. It will relieve some of that suicide, suicidal pressure. I have a, an incredible story about a friend of mine who, at 19, he was had experienced uh, bipolar um, disorder all of his life in depression. And when he was 19, he lived in San Francisco, and he thought, I can't do this anymore. It's too hard. And I'm just going, I'm going to jump off the Golden Gate Bridge. But when, when I talked to him about this, especially a mother of a child who, who has um, suicided, mm-hmm. he said some things that really stood out to me. And one of the things he said is oftentimes a person who decides to die by suicide is they'll make a pact with themselves that day. If blank happens, I won't kill myself today. Oh, wow. I make a myself tomorrow, but I won't kill myself today. Wow. His pact that he made with himself was if one person asked me if I'm okay, 
I won't kill myself today. Oh, my gosh. He tells wow. the story of he got into a, his car. He asked his father to take him to the city bus, and he cried all the way to the city bus thinking, this is the last time I'm going to see my dad. He hugs his dad goodbye and cries. He's sobbing, and mm-hmm. his father didn't say, hey, are you okay? He dropped him off. He gets to the city bus. It's a 10-minute ride from the city bus to the Golden Gate Bridge, and he gets on this loaded bus full of people and he has to walk all the way back to the bu- to the back of the bus to sit down and he's a 19 year old young man and he's crying he's sobbing and for 10 minutes he cried and sobbed on that bus and not one person asked him if he was okay he gets to the golden gate bridge and he's standing at the rail and he's looking over and a woman walked up to him and, and he said i'll never forget her she had this black hair and these gigantic Chanel sunglasses. And he thought, okay, this is it. She's going to ask me if I'm okay. And he, she hands him a camera and says, will you take my picture? And he went, okay. And he took her picture, gave her back the camera, and he jumped. Unbelievable. And this is the thing that he said that gives me chills to this day, and everybody needs to hear. He said the minute he jumped, he regretted it. God, please don't let me die. Please don't let me die. He wanted to take it back, but he couldn't. Mm -hmm. He hit that water in four seconds, and Mm -hmm. it crushed everything from his waist down. The impact took him so far underneath the water that he thought he was going to drown because he couldn't use his legs. And so he thought, I survived the jump, but I'm going to drown. And a lot of the jumpers, by the way, that is what they do, is it crushes them, and then they end up drowning. But he somehow came to the surface. He took a big gasp of breath. He went back down. He was coming back up, going back down. And then he felt something bumping up against his hip. And he thought, oh, my gosh, you know what's in, in the San Francisco Bay it's sharks. Yeah. So he's thinking, I survived the jump, I survived <laughs> drowning, wow. and now I'm going to be I'm going to be attacked by a shark, wow. and I'm going to die by shark attack. Wow. Well, eyewitnesses later told the Coast Guard and, and told him that what was bumping up against him, keeping him afloat, was a sea lion, and it kept him above the water oh. until a Coast Guard uh, boat could come and pull him out of the water. And oh. that that is stuck with me for the entire. Every minute of the day, when I see someone who's in distress, mm. when I see someone who's crying, I never not stop and ask, are you okay? That is so powerful, Terry. I know. I mean, that is that just makes me feel so happy for the times that I've asked it and so sad for the times that I've just kept walking and thought... It's not my problem. It's not my business. It's not my business. Exactly. And I love that you say it's it's time to start making yeah. it your business. Uh, uh, stop minding your own business. If you can just remember that, I stop minding that. your own business <laughs> and ask, are you okay? And, you know, I'm an attorney and I, I'm at the courthouse every day and, you know, I'll see people crying on those benches, you know, before they either, ha- either have court or if they've yeah. gotten bad news. And I'll walk past them and I'll stop and I'll think, now, Terry? You're the one who always says, stop minding your own business. And I will back up and I will go up to them and I'll say, are you okay? Mm -hmm. And they will say, well, they'll either tell me what's wrong Mm -hmm. or they'll say, no, I'm I'm okay. I'm okay. And and, uh, I had one client, as a matter of fact, Tova. I was representing her, and, and I went down into the medical portion of, of Loose Derrett, which is the Dallas County Jail. And when I met with her, I could tell. I, I, we there's always that glass. It's just like television. There's a glass between us. And but when I saw her and her eyes were, she was just 
uh, her, uh, like a scared animal, wild animal in there. And I said, are you, are you okay? Mm -hmm. And she said, no, you have got to get me out of here. I have this anxiety disorder, a severe anxiety disorder that if I don't get out of here, I don't know what's going to happen. And I said, well, are you thinking, are you thinking about killing yourself? And she said, well, no, especially if I get out of here, I, I, no. And I said, well, okay, so you don't have a plan to take your life. And she said, no, I don't. And so we talked for quite a while. She ended up getting out of jail and we took care of her case. And as we were getting ready to go before the judge, we were in this room off to the side of the courtroom. And she said to me, um, I'm really sorry about what's happened to you. And I looked at her very like, what, what do you mean? Mm -hmm. And she said, I Googled you. She said, now I know why God sent you to be my lawyer, because no other attorney has ever asked me those questions. Mm -hmm. And I'm so sorry you've lost your daughter. Mm -hmm. And it's still to this day, it just confirms that we have to be compassionate and ask the questions yeah. because it may save a life. She said, I would have taken my life had you not asked me the questions. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I know. Where were you when your daughter died? I had always wanted to go to law school. Mm -hmm. And I had been a news reporter, like I said before, um, you know, early, early in my life. And then I was a mom. I was a stay-at-home mom for years and years. And so after Tom and I got married, you know, he really he's an attorney, and he really encouraged me. He said, you can do this. Mm. I was 46 years old. Mm -hmm. I thought, I don't know if I can do this. You know, I haven't been in school for 25 years, but it's always something I wanted to do. I'm going to give it a go. Well, I was accepted, and I started, and I had two weeks of law school, and our phone rang. And I could hear Tom say, what? She's, she's dead? Hallie's dead? And I, I remember where I was. I remember what I was reading. I was reading research and writing. I, 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 I couldn't, I, I just cannot believe to this day that I heard those words. Yeah. And so um, I withdrew from school. I went to bed that night and I thought, it's truly, it's, a tr it's true when they say people have a, a broken heart because I could actually feel the pain of the loss of my daughter. You know, it's one thing to lose a, a husband. It's totally another thing to lose a child, that child who's been part of you, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, and I just, I, 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 I went to bed that night and somehow I slept and I woke up that next morning and I thought, maybe that was a nightmare. And I realized, no, it wasn't a nightmare. Mm -hmm. But I, in a way, I was... I, when I talk about that gratitude list, my, on my gratitude list was actually that I had already been through this with her father and I had survived. Mm. So I knew I had the confidence that if I did what I needed to do and I, and I gave my will and my life over the care of God to, through this, this process, that he was going to bring me through that. And he has, I mean, I'm, she's, she would, this is, it's been 14 years since Hallie took her life, and I've lived now as long without her as I did with her. Wow. And that was on, on September the 8th on her death anniversary. It was very poignant. Mm -hmm. And yet I also believe, though, that I will see her again. Mm -hmm. And one of, the, one of the ways I was finally able to take a deep breath was, 
okay, if I only live, if I live 40, uh, 40 more years on this earth, it's a blink of an eye oh, compared yeah. to eternity. Oh, and yeah. I could, and then it was like, okay, I can do this. <laughs> but what I, but one thing I want to, I want to say for people who are thinking, I can't go on, I, I can't go on if I, if I experience this. I withdrew from law school. The law school really was, was uh, helpful and they worked with me. And I, but they called me in May. This was in September. Hallie died in September. And they called me in May and they said, you need to make a decision, Terry, whether you're going to come back. If not, we need to fill your spot. Mm-hmm. And I went to my therapist and I, I, I said, I don't think I can do it. I mean, I'm in so much grief. I can't concentrate. It's rigorous. I just, there's no way I can, I can accomplish this. And she said, it's not my job to tell my clients or my patients what to do, but I'm going to tell you, you're going to go to law school. <laughs> she said, you're going to take it one semester at a time. That's awesome. I know. And she said, when you finish in three years, you will know, and you walk across that stage and you get your diploma, you will know there's nothing you can't do. <laughs> and she amazing. was right. She what was right. amazing advice. I know. I know. It was who, such a blessing. Who called you? Who called the home? Hallie was in a, uh, a therapeutic boarding school. Okay. And so because we knew she was suffering depression, like I was talking about, you know, right. we had done everything. Of we course. had taken the extreme measures of trying to keep her safe and, and, and heal her. And the expense. And exactly. Whatever exactly. it takes, because that's what you do with your children. You do. Mm-hmm. You do whatever you have to do. And, uh, you know, and then, so, you know, she, she, had about a 15-minute window of opportunity, and that's all it took. Wow. I know. Wow. But I can tell you this, that, um, you know, I've experienced some amazing um, divine um, experiences. I, there's, there's no way that I could have done this if I hadn't gotten those messages that I'm going to take care of you through this. Yeah. And... Um, you know, I, we buried Hallie on a Saturday, and the following Saturday, I happened to be in a shopping center, and I, it was like 9.30 in the morning, Toba, and I, I was driving home, and I, I live in, the, uh, at the time, I lived in the Park Cities, and I, I passed uh, uh, Christ the King Church, and the bells mm-hmm. were ringing 9.30 in the morning, and they were ringing and ringing and ringing, and I thought, is somebody, is there a funeral? I mean, surely there's not a 9.30 wedding, and I look over, and there's nothing going on. And I drive down the street and I turn left and I'm 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 right across uh, I'm passing Highland Park Meth- uh, uh, Presbyterian Church and the bells are ringing and ringing and ringing <laughs> and I started to feel this a feeling like I had after Hallie died I mean after Danny died and when I was standing in the girls' rooms that feeling came over me again and so I drove home and I lived right across the street from Highland Park Methodist Church and when I pulled into my driveway those bells were ringing <laughs> and ringing and ringing and I. I stopped and I said, okay, I hear you. Yeah. I hear you. And when I've had other difficult times in my life, the, when those church bells just start ringing for whatever reason, I know he's telling me, you're going to be okay. Yeah. It's You'll be okay. a beautiful thing. You'll make it through this. That's a beautiful... Mine yeah. is my my sign from heaven, I have two, cardinals and butterflies. Oh, yes. Butterfly. Blue butterflies are Hallie's. Are they? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, and just the most... I, and also pennies, pennies. Yeah. But but whenever I see or hear one of those things, it's like a sign that I am exactly where I need to be. That I'm doing exactly like it's like go, mom. Yes. It's like go. Oh, I love that. Yes. You like, and and my children died for medical reasons. I 
I, I, I just, I mean, I, and I agree. Thank God you went through this with your husband first. But how, knowing that you could get to the other side of a death, I, I get that. But how did you forgive yourself as a mother of a child who committed suicide? Yeah, it's very difficult because you're, as a mother, it's your job to take care of your Absolutely. children. It's your job to make sure that they they're are healthy okay. and healthy, happy. Exactly. And make sure they're okay. So you can imagine the, the self. Oh. Uh, I just felt totally responsible yeah, that if I had been a better mother, mm -hmm. this would not have happened. If I had been more lovable. That was interesting because I thought two people in my life have died mm -hmm. by, by, by suicide, which at the time, I mean, it feels very personal. It feels like they're sense. making a choice. Yeah, of course. Well, they're sick, obviously, right. and people get sick and die. But nevertheless, it feels like a choice. They're choosing to be to die away from you, away from you. And mm -hmm. I just kept thinking what, what it just, what it did to my, my self-esteem and my feeling is of worth. Mm. It was that I'm not lovable enough. I'm not worth staying. I'm not worth staying. For. Wow. Yes. I've never even thought about that, but that makes, I, 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 yeah, I think I would feel the same. Like, why wasn't I worth? Right. How come you didn't love me enough? enough to I'm stay. not lovable. It's yeah. be, I mean, all of these messages that you give yourself, yeah. which are again, that's why you need a therapist, because mm -hmm. you have to have someone deal with your own cognitive distortions. The mm -hmm. all, the, you can't always believe everything you think, mm -hmm. because it's not, it's not accurate. You need someone to bounce that off of. They can give you a reality check. Of course I'm lovable. Of right. course God loves me. I mean, right. uh, people love me. Right. My children love <laughs> me. But I couldn't believe that, because my daughter chose to die and that's the Instead way I looked your at daughter. it. daughter. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's the way I looked at it. It was really tough. To someone um, to someone who is contemplating suicide who doesn't think that um, their life is worth living, that the world is better without them. What and and as a person who who was left behind um, or survived, what would you say to them? I would say if you think that people will be better off without you, you're wrong. It will destroy lives. It will cause lifelong pain that you experience on a daily basis. Yeah. You, they will miss you. They will never get over it. Yeah. it when, when a person dies by suicide, at least 18 people are affected by that, usually more than that. Oh, I'm sure. And there is a ripple effect. And other people, friends, may get to the point where they die as a result. It is not the solution. I understand people's pain, and they don't. They're tired, yeah. and they don't think they can do this. And I, what I have to say is this. There's always hope. There's always hope, and there are things, there are places you can go, and there are people who are becoming much more compassionate and aware of the situation who will walk with you through these very dark periods until you can start thinking right again. And sometimes it takes medication. They say recovery from depression 
is like a three-legged stool, Toba. It's, uh, and you need every leg or it'll fall over. Oftentimes for people with clinical depression, they need medication. And don't be afraid to take it. And go to, a, go to a psychiatrist. Don't go to your internist. Go to a psychiatrist, the doctor for the brain. Mm-hmm. A psychiatrist uh, prescribes medication. Then you go to a therapist who helps you with the cognitive distortion, the thinking errors that you have. Then you need peer support. And that is why um, m- uh, many people do recover. Because when you're especially a survivor of, a su- of suicide, you're very lonely. It's a lonely place to be. It's a, you feel like you live on a different planet because it's so, uh, it, even though it's becoming more prevalent, it's kind of a rare situation. Right. And so you need to find the, the groups where you can go share your, 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 your common experience because it's so unique. Uh, surviving suicide is so unique. And the Suicide Crisis Center offers grief groups for parents or family members or uh, siblings or whatever. And I know the Grant Halliburton Foundation also has a survivor's group. And it's so important to find those groups and be among people who understand. How are your three girls doing today? Well, I I love that. It's always conditional. It depends on the day. (laughs) And I can tell you this, that today they're good. And I'm so thankful. And, uh, you know, I have a, my uh, oldest daughter uh, is, you know, she's, she's, doing well today and my my uh second oldest daughter has a a nine-month-old son Mm -hmm. and so we finally have a boy in the family and he (laughs) is the most precious thing i'm not proud at all of course (laughs) and then uh, my third daughter is she's she's doing okay she's in she's finishing up school and you know another thing is is that for parents when you have a you have a perception of how your life's your kid's life should go. They should go to elementary school, middle school, high school, go to college, graduate, go to get a job. You know, when you experience trauma like this, it it completely derails people's lives. And I, I encourage parents to be okay with the direction and the journey that their children experience. It's not going to be traditional. Mm-hmm. It's going to be their own journey of recovery. And if they need to take uh, 15 years to graduate from college, if they even graduate from college, it's okay. Yeah. You don't need to freak out <laughs> because your child is not doing it like you think they should be doing really it. good. It's really good. It probably has just given you a perspective that all the things that all the angst and all the, uh, you know, that we put on our kids and we expect from our kids, it's just, it's just not worth it. No, it's just not. It's just a perspective that we lose when we're when we get in the middle of the rat race. That from the grand scheme, the big picture is just. There's just way more important things at hand. It really is. It puts things in perspective yeah. for you. And, you know, and who who am I to say as a mother that my perception and my my way of doing things is right from, for anyone else? Right. And, of course, I have an obligation to raise my kids to the age of 18 and hopefully get them through, you know, right. uh, high school, hopefully. Yeah. I mean, but then from then on, they're adults and they can make decisions for themselves. Yeah. Yeah, it's really important. It I think is. the pressure we put on our kids sometimes about certain things is part of the anxiety, yeah. the growing anxiety that these kids feel. Wow, I couldn't agree more. Terry, thank you 
so much for being here today. Thank you for sharing your story and for your incredible wisdom and your just valuable insight to what it's like to be a survivor, what it's like to be to love people so dearly and lose them and and then to give hope to people who might really be struggling. It's you are such a gift today. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you Tova. Thank you. I appreciate you so much too. Well, thank you for being here. Thank you for listening to The Remedy with Tova Cito. To get more information, sponsor an episode, or contribute to this program, please visit us online at tovacito.com slash podcast or find us on social media.